0: Okay, so this morning we picked up where we left off. We got through 1 Peter 3, verse 7, last week. And Peter is writing to the people of the dispersion. They are under persecution. And Peter gives them no encouragement that it's going to get better. So it's what he's doing. He is telling them who they are, they're God's people, special people, telling them to how they are supposed to conduct themselves during this time of persecution. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, he hits on the subject of subjection. Christians are supposed to be submissive to others to be submissive to the governing authorities to their household masters their spouses and to each other they're supposed to live a life of submission now of course you know, they're never supposed to break God's law if they're told to break God's law they're supposed to say forget it I'm not doing that <clears throat> so we just gotten through with that now one thing that Peter has reminded them of is who they are. What's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to their persecutors. It is so important for them to keep in mind their future and their persecutors future so that they will be able to follow these instructions. Because these instructions he's laying down for them beginning in verse 8 are not real easy to do. And, uh, it just goes against what happens The way people normally act when they're treated wrongly, they don't act this way, that Peter is getting ready to tell them to do. And so, they need to remember who they are, what their future is, their persecutors, who they are, and what the persecutor's future is. Now, if we turn to Revelation 19, we will see the end product of both of these. The end product of what a Christian is going to get and the end product of what their persecutors are going to get. So let's have 19, 1 through 8 read for us.
1: After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude
0: that the time is coming when at the end of verse 2 God is going to avenge the blood of his servants. These people that are persecuting the Christians and kill them they God is going to take vengeance upon them. And then at the end of verse 3 the smoke from her or from them goes up forever and ever. That is what's going to happen to those people that are mistreating you so badly. Now, this is what happens to you. You are going to come to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. The Lamb is your husband. You are this bride. He does not like it when people mistreat his bride. And we're going to see what happens later. But you are coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You have made yourself ready. You, have clo- you will clothe yourself with fine linen, bright and pure, by your righteous deeds. So that's what you, believer, you have in store for you. And just remember, these people that are persecuting you, they have this in store for them, what we've just read. Alright, John 5. Let's turn to that. Just give you a two-fold perspective on the future of the righteous and the wicked. John five twenty-six through 29.
2: For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation.
0: All right. All authority... To execute judgment has been given to the son. He has all authority. And he has a bride, the church. And his bride is being mistreated. And we saw in Revelation 19 what's going to happen to them. And we see that on the last day, that everyone that is in the grave, all people, all men, women, and children who have died, are going to come up from the dead out of their graves to a resurrection. Those that belong to Jesus will come to the resurrection of life and those who are against Jesus, against His church, will come to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. So, Christian, when we're under great pressure, By wicked men, we need to keep these things in mind. Just like they need to keep in mind here, what's gonna happen to them. So, let the wicked get wickeder still. They're gonna, they're gonna come. They're gonna pay for it. Any comments on, on the introduction? That was just kind of the introduction. Hopefully it'll lift our spirits too because we live in a wicked culture. Alright, so today we pick up in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. And we'll go through verse 12. And so, uh, Bud, you'll read that for us.
1: Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a noble mind. and his ears are open to their prayer. But the
0: face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The first word here, and according to our English translators, or at least of the ESV, is finally. How many times have we heard a preacher say finally? Mm-hmm. And he goes for 30 minutes after that. <laughs> I'm going to read you what a preacher says about that. Jay Adams. Read this for fun. Um, Jay Adams says, When Peter says finally, he is not like many preachers who have trouble bringing their sermons in for a landing. <laughs> <laughs> they approach the runway with a finally, only to be zooming off into the blue again to take another spin around the field. Here the word finally is appropriate because it marks the conclusion of the section on submission that is in these verses that is in these verses coming to a close. So, yeah, when he says finally, he means he's talking just only about the subject of submission. Okay, so...
1: Like the NASB, it
0: says to sum up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They say that too, though. Don't yeah. They know. Do they? <laughs> my last point. <laughs> you know, yeah. Some years
1: ago, I had uh, Pastor Joe Morcraft speak at my church, in Sumter. He got him in the pulpit, and this big old wristwatch, and he took it off and put it right beside the podium, and he said, "Now, y'all know what it means when a Presbyterian preacher takes off his watch."
0: And he said, doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it's to the end, to the telos. The telos, the end, wrapping up everything. <clears throat> okay, so Peter says, finally, and now he instructs them to have these things listed. The, this is from the ESV translation. Unity of mind Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If everybody in the churches did this, we'd all get along, right? Wouldn't have any problems. And now commentator Clowney points out that those who live like this will be mocked. They'll be mocked just as our Lord was mocked on the cross. Now, who do you think the, in the line of philosophers would be the first in line to mock Christians for their humility and sympathy and tenderheartedness? I bet Charles would because he is philosophy major. Uh, there, were, there, there would be a lot of people that could fit that category, I <laughs> guess. Yeah. Probably the most famous, at least I think, is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, yeah. And Clowney has a little quote by him in here that says, um, The last of the graces that Peter mentions is humility. Be humble. Frederick Nietzsche scorned this biblical virtue. He called the Jews a people born for slavery. Now by Jews he means God's people, not the Ethnic Jews, he called the he called the church, a people born of slavery, and accused them of inverting values by making the word poor synonymous with saint or friend. So, um, he, his philosophy was against this, and this is a, I like to mention an unbelievable philosopher a lot of times um, because they're. He was. He died in. He died of syphilis, by the way, a very immoral immoral man died of syphilis, and and conveniently in the year one thousand nine hundred, where it makes it easy to remember when he died. And um, when he became a believer. Um, but anyway, he he hated Christianity. He hated the way Christians act, the way they talk. He hated the scriptures. And we still see it. he is alive and well. His teachings came to the forefront in Germany in the 20s and 30s. He was one of the main philosophers for Nazism, and he um which mean, you know, these philosophers, you you know, you can study them if you want to, but you got to realize they still have a big effect on culture nowadays. So he, you know, you've heard the God is dead. Well, that's the teaching of Nietzsche. I don't know exactly what he meant by God is dead, because he's a hard man to understand. But God's still alive and well, and Nietzsche's dead. So um, he was wrong. And Nietzsche makes this comment too. This is, this doesn't concern the lesson. It's just a, a uh, interesting comment. He says this in his book, Beyond Good and Evil. He said, it is a curious thing that God learned Greek when he wished to turn author. Curious that he learned Greek and that he did not learn it better. This is a very wicked man. We see this kind of garbage in our society now. You know, he was a man that so-called invented Superman, the will to power. You know, you get out there, you will to power. Every man, the good men are supermen. Just the opposite of everything taught in the scriptures. And we see that. We don't see humility taught very much in the schools. You turn on TV, turn on the TV, you don't see that. That's because they despise God. Alright, any other comments on Nietzsche? He knows better now that God's not dead. Alright, so Christians will be mocked. People that think the same as Nietzsche were alive and well then, they're alive and well now. So it's to be mocked. Alright, before we break these things down, these five virtues here. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 because they exhibited exactly what Peter was telling them. Now, if Peter was there, he would know, and Acts chapter 2, this is the early church I guess it was probably within a few days after Pentecost. And this was what they did. And whoever has that passage is that you might verses 42 through 47. They were
1: continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possession <clears throat> and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved.
0: All right. Peter was among those very early church. And it's what we read in here, um, just to emphasize it, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now the apostles wrote the New Testament, of course, and they could only teach from the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. So the apostles were teaching the scriptures, and so they were trying to develop unity of mind. Let's go over a minute. Hold your place there, and go over to Ephesians 4:13. Let me get the exact verses here that I want Jill to read. All right, let's let's begin with, um, let's begin in verse 11.
2: And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love.
0: Okay. Thank you. So the unity of mind, they should agree in an increasing measure on doctrine as they mature the apostles daily were teaching doctrine so that they would have unity of mind. Paul prescribes here in Ephesians 4 that the pastors and teachers are to build up the body of Christ, that's verse 12, until they all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God To a mature manhood. A mature manhood. Knowing their doctrine. Knowing who Christ is. Knowing Christ himself. They keep learning. And as they learn more and more about Christ. They would attain to the unity of the faith. They would all be thinking the same things. Scripture teaches one thing. It doesn't teach tell you something, and you have five different angles on it. It teaches. So we should come to the unity of the faith, to a mature manhood. We're not supposed to remain babes in Christ. But we're supposed to grow up into the knowledge of the Son of God and not be children. So many places you can go to church, and the people there are still children. We've all known people that are still children in the faith that have been coming to church all their lives. But we are not supposed to be that way. We are supposed to grow. We're supposed to listen to the pastors and teachers as they teach, learning more, growing to a mature manhood, growing up and not carried about by every wind of doctrine and we are to be united and mature with every person doing its part. So that's what a church is supposed to look like. So we are supposed to grow. We don't stay where we are. So this is nothing new. Anybody know what the first verse of Psalm 133 says?
1: Behold how good it is! Yeah.
0: Behold how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now we would hear that all the time in the PCA, and they would be united in everything but doctrine. But the one thing we're to be united in is doctrine. Behold how beautiful it is and good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Speaking the same things, having one mind, and the way to have one mind is to know enough each person to know enough about doctrine to where you all believe the same thing. If you don't have unity of doctrine, you're not going to have unity, not in God's eyes. You may have unity in the world, but you <coughs> will not have unity in God's eyes until you come to the unity in the faith. Alright, the next one listed there is sympathy. This is not just a feeling, but it is action. We saw in this reading of of, um, Acts chapter 2 that they all were, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to any that had need. Now this is not communism. This is voluntary people in the church helping each other and making sure that everybody had what they needed. So they were very sympathetic and it resulted in action. Everybody was taking care of everybody. A tender heart. Okia. Oh, yeah. um, no, next is brotherly love what's the city of brotherly love now? <clears throat> oh, no. you don't have... Not Pittsburgh, right? <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. Philadelphia. That is the Greek <clears throat> words for brotherly love. So we're to have Philadelphia. And again, this is not just a feeling, but it is action. That's how 1 John 5, 1 and 2 read to us
2: whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe all His commandments.
0: Alright. We have Christians can justify to the hilt while we love one another. Non-Christians cannot justify while they love one another. We can account for it because The Father, these brothers and sisters in Christ, every one of us in here, hopefully anyway, have been born of God, have been begotten by God. We're His child, all of us. The reason I have to love each and every one of you is because you are all children of God. Not because any of us are so great, but we are the children of God. All right, and then let's have Ephesians, I mean, 1 John 3, 14 through 18, read. We know that we
2: have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in our word or talk, but in deed and in truth.
0: Let us word, word love in deed and in truth. So it is an action. It's not just a feeling. We love one another and not just in tongue. All right. The next is a tender heart. They are under increasing persecution, which means they could easily become callous, cold hearted, callous, whatever. They are instructed to retain an interest in others and to be sensitive to them. Ephesians four thirty-two: Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. We're to be kind, tender hearted, and forgiving. We are not to be callous. And finally, a humble mind. This is commanded all over the scriptures. Especially in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Did I sign that for somebody? Yes. Okay.
1: Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.
0: All right, here we have the God-man, the eternal Son of God, the Creator. The eternal Son of God, became the God-man by taking on human flesh. And even though the creation belonged to him, he humbled himself. He became obedient. And he, he came in the form of a bondservant. And he was obedient even to the death of the cross. So the eternal Son of God became man and humbled himself. So Jesus is not asking us to do anything he hadn't done. We will never have to humble ourselves to the extent that Jesus humbled himself so that we would be saved. Okay. Now we... Um, going back to First um, Peter. in verse 9 he says do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called so in verse 9 Peter instructs them in what to do when they are treated wrongly and reviled they are not to react as the unbelieving world does The unbelieving world says, I don't get mad, I get even. Seen that before? (laughs) But they do get mad and they do get even. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We are not to get mad, but on top of that, we are to bless. Somebody persecutes you, Peter says, you are to bless. Bless. Remember, this is our calling to suffer. All right, let's have Romans 12, 14 through 21 read. And this is how you, being good, overcome evil, according to the Apostle Paul. Romans twelve fourteen through
2: 21. Yes. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the scriptures say... I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good.
0: All right. This is the way that we are supposed to do it. We are supposed to overcome evil. By doing good, we don't get mad, we don't get even, but that's what we do. And the final result is that Christians inherit a blessing, and we can depend on God because He says, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," says the Lord. It's not your job. We're not in the revenge business. You can't. You're not allowed to take provision for uh, revenge for several reasons. Number one, you don't know all the facts. And so therefore you don't know what the proper amount of revenge is to give to others. You're not capable of it. You're not capable of vengeance. Because you will either be too severe or too lax. You don't know the facts. Why bother? Let God take care of that. Okay, and the last thing here. Note that Christians are to bless when mistreated. God forbids His people from taking revenge. Unbelievers are trying to destroy their only hope of being blessed. We don't bless them on this earth. They don't get any blessings on this earth. We're the conduit, I guess you might say, of God's blessings to them. And they want to destroy us. And we're their only hope. Alright, that's all the further we're going to get today. Anyone have anything to add? All right, if not, Kim, I'm going to ask you today to close us in prayer. Mm